Well, open your Bibles to Genesis 43. If you would, Genesis chapter 43. I'm sure you've all heard by now the infamous Malaysian Flight 370. I didn't even have to Google the number. I'd heard 370 so many times. And I don't know how many hours of coverage that CNN or other networks have been given to to the flight, but it just goes on and on. It there was so much coverage about nothing. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible tragedy. But there's really nothing to report other than other than it's gone and 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 people grasping at straws at what happened to it. It, it got so much coverage that it actually made it as a joke on the correspondence dinner with the president the other night, along with Obamacare. When it, when it first started, I couldn't, couldn't help feeling heavy-hearted for the families, the loved ones on the plane. You know, you're kind of there. You thought, wow, so horrible. Plane crash, so many people on it. And then you hear, well, they can't find the crash, and they don't know what happened to it. And they thought, you know, well, that's weird. Wonder what happened to that thing? You know, is it hiding in Afghanistan or you know where is it at? We don't know. And then and then story after story, one ship would see an oil slick, and then a Chinese satellite would come with a report of wreckage, only to raise the hopes of the family to be stolen away by a revelation that was a false lead. And then the cycle would repeat itself over and over. I mean, I found myself so many times whenever it first started, saying, I mean, this must be it. This, they, they, they have to have found it this time because there's no way that they would keep doing this to these people, right? And then it would turn out to be, to be false again. It seemed like a, a never-ending game of over here. No, over here. No, over here. I can imagine that that's how Joseph felt many times, don't you? I mean, Joseph never lost hope from a 17-year-old boy from the time that he left Egypt. Many times, he kept that hope alive in his heart only to have a more difficult circumstance presented. Things in his life turned for what seemed like the worst. And hope is a powerful thing. It's the spiritual air in life. We, we need it to live. And without hope, life can be, become very, very desperate. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but I need hope that there's a way out of the mess that I made yesterday and the mess that others make uh, around me. We need hope that tomorrow can be different from today. That's how we ended the message last week. Your, your tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today or, or yesterday. We need hope that relationships can be restored and and while we hope in fellow sinners it's not always the best bet and while that's true hope in God is is always a sure thing God has the ability and the desire to transform lives and the lives of others around us and and if we we look to him we'll find hope to live until he has completed that work because as you know, transformation, spiritual transformation, while instantaneous, regeneration is immediate. But then the change that can take place in life can take time. And hope is what gives us the ability to live until God has completed that work. And that's what we're going to see in the, in the story of, 
of Jacob through the life of Joseph today. It's been 20 years since Joseph's been taken from his home. He's bloomed every place that he's planted, and he still held out hope that one day things would change. I mean, the, the, the statement that Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, makes about Joseph is that he has faith and speaks of the exodus before it ever takes place. Take my bones to, to Canaan. Even the names of his children are a reminder of his hope that one day he'll return to Canaan. That one day, God will do something out of this mess that's in his life. And now, seeing his brothers, he remembers the dream and this hope, no doubt begins to bubble up in his heart again. And yet he's unsure, so he puts his brothers to the test. After chapter 42, we ask, will, will the appearance of the brothers, will Joseph's hope be like Malaysian Flight 370? I mean, will this just be another detour, another dashing of, of Joseph's hope? Joseph doesn't know. Will Joseph find God at work in his brothers, or, or will he find the same men he knew 20 years ago? Because now they've left, and they've gone back to Canaan, and Joseph is back to the daily task of governing and distributing. He went back to work. And there's no internet, and there's no email, and there's no texting, and he doesn't even know if they made it back to Canaan. He doesn't know how Father responded all he's got is Simeon in jail over here, and he can't even reveal to Simeon who he is. Well, today we're going we're gonna to set the stage for what's going to happen through the end of chapter 43 and chapter 44. We're coming to the climax of the story, and we get a glimpse that God truly is transforming people. He's transforming the vilest of the bunch. God has been at work in Canaan just as He's been at work in Egypt. And you're going to see that work begin to emerge today and see that a transformation is underway. Chapter 43 begins to show us that there's a transformation underway in Jacob and there's a transformation underway in Judah. And that transformation of both of those men will ultimately lead to a transformation in the entire family. And all of that begins with hope. The hope that Joseph had that he held for 20 plus years. Something you've been hoping for? How long has it been? 10 years? 15 years? 20 years? Joseph will have to wait a little bit longer, but whenever his hope is fulfilled, it's worth the wait. Let's look at Genesis 43. We're only going to cover verses 1 through, through 15. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they'd eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you'll not send him, we won't not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. 
And Israel said, Why do you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had, whether you still had another brother? And they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, Could we possibly have known what he would say? Bring your brother down. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, That is a mouthful. Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be a pledge, will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned uh, a second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, do this. He gives them specific instructions in what to do. Now look at verse 14. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Joseph's brothers had been reintroduced to the story and, and were back in Canaan. And, and chapter 43 starts the same place that chapter 42 does. In Canaan, with a discussion between Jacob and the brothers. But something is drastically different about this conversation. While Joseph doesn't have faith in, in the brothers, he does in Yahweh. So he puts them to five tests to see if they're different. And they fail every single one. The, the, other than whether they killed Benjamin. They, they fail every single test. And if anyone, if anyone has reason to lack hope, it's Joseph, right? I mean, based on the circumstances. One commentator says if if Joseph's future decisions was based only on chapter 42, on, on whether the brothers passed the test, Joseph would have been better off sending his brothers with grain, sending them on their way and thanking God for delivering him from such a mess. <laughs> you feel that way about life sometimes? Whew, man, I'm glad I am done with that. Thank you for delivering me for such a mess. That's not how Joseph approaches the mess of his family. God's not done with the story. Just like God's not done with your story. God has made a promise and He will fulfill it no matter how bleak it looks. And things are starting to turn. Jacob is starting to act like Israel and trust in the Lord. And Judah begins to take his place as a leader. And Joseph's hope is beginning to be confirmed by his brother's return. I'm only going to go through the first 15 verses, but I would title this, Hope in God's Transforming Power. It's the only place that you can have hope. And you're going to see that through faith tested in Jacob's decision, verses 1 through 8. And then you're going to see that confirmed through trust given based on Judah's pledge. Faith tested in Jacob's decision and trust given based on Judah's 
pledge. Let's look at faith tested in Jacob's decision. You got three subpoints, three bullet points up there: denial, delay, and dependence. I think Jacob gives us a case study here on how many people make difficult decisions, doesn't he? He starts in denial, then he moves to the tactic of delay, and finally, finally, whenever he's forced to make the choice, he relents and depends upon an instrument of the Lord and ultimately the Lord Himself. Look at this detail that is brought out in verse 1. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land. Now remember, Moses turning the page. Think of this like, like a new scene in the play, a new part of the movie reel. And Moses brings us back to, to the famine, the problem, the issue. And the famine is severe in, in the land. He reverses the, the subject and verb order from chapter 42 when he first introduces the famine to emphasize how severe it is. The famine. Severe in the, in the land. He emphasizes also in verse 2. Look at verse 2. And it came to pass when they'd eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt. The word that he uses there for eaten up the grain means to devastate it or ravage it. It's the same word for what the famine does to the crops. The, the family has devastated. They've devoured the food. The famine is so severe, they've, they've devoured the food that they have, just like the famine was doing to the, to the land. Moses is setting the stage for, for the problem. And, and the point is, the famine is still there, and it's gotten worse. You might expect that, but you might not expect what comes next. Look at verse 2. They devoured the grain which they had brought from Egypt. And their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. I mean, this is a perplexing request. I mean, he speaks of going to Egypt as if it's like running down to the quickie mart. Hey, go pick me up some milk and eggs, would you guys? He also says absolutely nothing about Simeon. Do you find that strange? When you were reading ahead in chapter 43, you're like, they just eat the food until it runs out, and then he says, hey, go back and get some more. What about Simeon? I mean, did you forget about your brother down there? What he also doesn't say anything about is what is required by the Egyptian official if they return to buy food, which is really the elephant in the room. Jacob knows very well about Simeon. Jacob knows very well about the famine. And Jacob knows very well that Benjamin is required before they get food. Jacob is in denial. He just eats the grain until it runs out, refusing to deal with either the short-term repercussions or the long-term reality of the famine. Every day, he watches the food supplies go down, and he does nothing, and they go down, and he does nothing, and they go down, and he does nothing. And Moses shows us that Jacob is doing the very thing that he accused his sons of doing when he got very frustrated with them at the beginning of chapter 42. You remember what he said to his sons? There's a famine in the land. Why are you standing around looking at each other? Get up, go to Egypt. And Jacob is doing the exact same thing here. 
Jacob just pretends it's not as bad as it really is, and maybe if he just doesn't think about it, this huge problem will go away. Maybe. Maybe a different answer will surface. Maybe rain will come. Maybe something will change, even though he has the answer right in front of him of what he needs to do and what he must do for his family to solve the problem. That's easy to do, isn't it? And the more difficult the decision, the bigger the problem, the easier that is to do. You have a problem, you've been confronted with it, you know what you need to do, but it's just not something that you want to deal with. So you refuse. But if you live life long enough, you realize that doesn't make the problem go away, does it? What happens? The problem grows. And the problem will grow for Jacob. Driver Scott Goodyear, speaking of race car drivers who have been killed in crashes at the Indianapolis 500, said, you just don't look where it happened. You don't watch the films of it on television. You don't deal with it. You pretend it never happened. And the speedway operation itself encourages this approach. As soon as the track closes, the day of an accident, a crew heads out to paint over the spot where the car hit the wall. Through the years, a driver has never been pronounced dead at the racetrack. A trip to Indianapolis Motor Speedway Racing Museum inside the 2.5-mile oval has no memorial of the 40 drivers who have lost their lives there. Nowhere is there even a mention. And that's some way, it's the way some people live their lives. You may live your life that way. Maybe tempting to live life that way. You watch people hit the wall on a daily basis, some of them fatally, and you pretend it won't happen to you or someone else. And the world and the devil is happy to paint over the marks on the wall where the last crash took place as long as you just keep going around the track. And one of the most precarious areas where men do this where I did it until age 24, is the reality of facing God one day. I knew full well I'd sin. Nobody had to tell me that. My conscience told me that on a regular basis. I knew that I didn't have what I needed to stand before God, but I was just putting it off in hope. And one day I'd become religious, and one day I would do what I knew I needed to do. Or in the end, maybe it was different from what I, from what I thought. Denial is never a strategy for life. It's a recipe for death. And Joseph here is in denial, and if God doesn't intervene in Joseph's life, not only is Joseph going to die, but three generations are going to die because of Jacob's denial. Jacob not only tries denial, he delays. Verse 2, he says, Go back and buy some little food. Verse 3, But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. When he gets to the point that, that Jacob 
must do something, he tries to another tactic. He has no food now. He, he can't just wait any longer. The, the grain stores are gone. He's watched it dwindle every day, and now he has nothing. Now he has to do something. And when he gets to that point, he tries another tactic, and that tactic is delay. I mean, Jacob knows that the deal is Benjamin must accompany them. He hasn't forgotten the length of time in the length of time that it took him to consume the food since he's been brought back from Egypt. Not to mention the fact that Simeon's absence on a daily basis is a constant reminder both of the problem and and what is required. If Jacob wants his son back, and he's delaying the decision to the last moment, I'll show you that whenever Jacob finally makes the decision, how he finally relents. Even the brothers knew. Verse 3, Judah is the first one to speak. And he reminds his father of the requirements set by the man. He's called the man. They all knew there wasn't enough grain to last and last, and Jacob just doesn't want to think about it. Judah reminds him that the man makes the rules and they have to play by them because he has the bread. May I say to you, God has the bread and He makes the rules. And you're the beggar, just like me. And if you want the bread, you play by the man's rules. And God's rules are by grace through faith. He reminds him in verse 4, if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. Now, verse 5, it almost seems like he's being a smart aleck to his father, but he's just confronting him with reality. If you will not send him, we will not go down. There's no reason for us to go. He, he says, the, look at what he says, For the man said to us, You shall not see even my face unless your brother is with you. He's going, Dad, I can't slip in the back door. There's no other Egyptian to sell me the food. i got to go to the guy. And the guy said, you won't even get an audience with me unless you bring the brother. I mean, that's what he's saying to him. There's no reason to go. And that's something that Jacob doesn't want to hear. Look at verse 6. Israel said, why do you deal so wrongfully with me? I mean, why do you confront me with this truth? Why do you deal so wrongly with me? Why did you tell the man this information anyway? Jacob says, you shared too much information in Egypt. Jacob would know a little bit about not being totally forthright, wouldn't he? What did you do that for? Why did you tell him the truth? When you're delaying, you want excuses, not facts, don't you? I mean, if you don't want to make a difficult decision, if I don't want to make a difficult decision, I look for excuses and I avoid the facts. And Jacob here wants to avoid the facts. And so the first place he goes is he makes an excuse. You shared too much information. The reason that we're in this situation is because you shared too much information. If you hadn't have told him about Benjamin, I wouldn't be in this situation. Is that true? Why are they in this situation? They're in the situation because there's a famine. And the situation's got worse because Jacob has refused to do anything about it. 
And when you're delaying, you want excuses, not facts. And and when you're delaying, you also want a scapegoat, not responsibility. You want a scapegoat, not responsibility. He draws attention not only to the information, but but it was the, the sons that, that shared it. Look at verse 7. I want you to notice this carefully. Because in verse 3, it says, But Judah spoke to him. Judah is seen here reasoning with his father. Verse 6, Israel said... Why do you deal so wrong with me? Look at verse 7. Look at who speaks now. But they said. You see that? That's the brothers. And then look at verse 8. Then Judah said. Judah is separated from the group. And in verse 7, the other brothers minus Judah, they lie. There's no change in these other brothers. When, when When their dad says... Why did you deal so wrongly with me and tell the man whether you still had another brother? They said, the man asked us pointedly. Is that true? Like in chapter 42, they offered this information because they were afraid and their guilty consciences bothered them. And so they just started offering all kinds of information. But look at how the rest of the brothers answer to the father. The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? That's not true. And we told him according to these words. We're honest men, Dad. I mean, how could we do anything but? He point blank asked us. They're lying and they're still holding themselves up as honest men. You don't see any transformation having taken place yet in the rest of the brothers. Could we possibly have known we're innocent here? Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? It's not our fault. Jacob brings, all this brings Jacob back to the point where he's now facing the reality of the situation again. And I would say the second most destructive technique in dealing with difficult decisions in life is delay. Denial and then delay. And if Satan can lure a man or a woman, if he can't lure a man or a woman into denial about the future or a problem, then he'll lull you to sleep through delay. He says, yeah, it's true, but you've got time. Don't worry about it right now. Many of you, no doubt, have heard of, I'd say it's probably hard to find anybody who hasn't heard of Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang, right? It was one of the classic comic strips. Well, prior to Charlie Brown and Peanuts, now I'm going to date a number of you, the classic comic strip was Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? And he had a friend named J. Wellington Wimpy, right? And J. Wellington Wimpy went by the name just Wimpy. And Wimpy was famous for putting off today for tomorrow. And one of his famous lines was, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. In 1932, so now you just dated yourself. You, you know what Wimpy said. It goes all the way back to 1932. It ran longer than that. But in 1932, that statement, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, became commonly used to illustrate fiscal irresponsibility in the country. Wimpy's now in the White House and the Congress. 
But the point is delaying decisions. And worse than putting off lunch or fiscal matters in the country is delaying in dealing with sin or the eternal destiny of your soul. The Bible says today is the day, right? You're not promised tomorrow. Does the Bible say that over and over and over? It does. And while denial and delay is destructive, many times God does His greatest work amidst human failure. That brings us to this transformation and hope seen in the trust given based on Judah's pledge. Look at verse 8 and 9. Jacob can't get out of the problem. He's denied. He's delayed. He's been confronted. He's been brought to the point by circumstances where he can do nothing else. The sons, his other sons, the other brothers are running for cover. But then in verse 8, Then Judah said to Israel, his father. As I read it, I said that's a mouthful. That is a packed phrase. Judah, who would become the one who the line would come through, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to Israel, the covenant name of Jacob, who is his father. Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him from my hand. You shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And he would have. It's the second time Judah has spoken, and you begin to see something is different about Judah. When was the last time we heard from Judah? Chapter 38. Last time you heard anything out of Judah, Judah was a murderer, a liar, an adulterer, He's gotten his daughter-in-law pregnant who posed as a prostitute. And now Judah is pleading for the lives of his entire family to the patriarch who is supposed to lead them. Can God change a person? You better believe He can, Corky. Can God use a person after miserable failures? You just ask Judah and you watch what happens to Judah in the next chapters. And Jacob's delay allows the leader God intends to use to become clear. And Judah does two things here. First, he leads his father to the point of decision, but does not usurp him. No small task. Anybody can blow something up. But it takes skill to lead somebody to the point of decision without usurping, especially whenever that person has greater authority than you do. You wives know exactly what I'm talking about. When you lead your husbands, you convince your husbands of the right decision that they may be blind to, but you do that in a way that they think it's their decision all along, right? And yet you know where the influence came from. And that's exactly what Judah does. And Judah also takes responsibility himself. It's a masterful strategy. Judah first, look at verse 8, 
he says, send a lad with me. He calls Benjamin a lad. Now, Benjamin's a grown man. Joseph is 37 and Benjamin's just a few years younger than him. I mean, it would be like me calling a 30-year-old man a boy. What's the purpose in doing that? It's like, it's like saying, he's my younger brother. Dad, I'll take care of, I'll take care of my, my younger brother. It's the only place in the New Testament where a brother refers to another brother as a lad, an R. And he adds to the plea, I'll take care of him. A reminder that if Jacob says no, three generations will die. Look at what he says here. Verse 8, send a lad with me that we may arise, we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and all our little ones. Three generations are at stake. If you think the pressure was on Jacob before, I mean, Judah is masterfully bringing the clarity to the, to the situation. And as I said, the strategy is masterful. Jacob is still on the driver's seat. He's still the one making the decision. But Jacob has to choose to either send Benjamin and risk losing him in Egypt or stay, do nothing, and risk losing Benjamin for sure along with himself and the rest of the family, three generations. Judah doesn't make the decision. It's still Jacob's, but there's really no decision at all there's only one logical one to make. And then, after he says, I'll take care of him. And if we don't, three generations are going to die. Look at, look at the rest of them. I know you love Benjamin. I know your heart is set on Benjamin. But, but it will end. And then he seals it all with a personal promise of personal responsibility. Verse 9, I myself will be surety for him. He says, you can hold me personally responsible. Literally, of my hand, you shall require him. It's the almost the exact same phrase in Ezekiel and other prophets when they used, if a prophet doesn't warn the wicked, God will require the blood of the wicked at the prophet's hands. That's what he's saying. Serious statement. And Judah is saying, you can require his blood at my hands. Put it on me. And Judah, by that statement, will do what Reuben was unwilling to do. The two guys besides the brothers that you see through the story is Reuben and Judah. And Reuben looks like a really good guy when he starts out, right? I mean, let's not kill him. And then you think, well, maybe, maybe Reuben wasn't with this plot all along. And then Reuben's character really gets put on display at the end of chapter 42. The oath of Reuben from last chapter really comes into perspective and you see his true character, lack of character. Judah says, required at my hand. Reuben says, required at my son's hands. You see that? Judah says, I'll put my own life on the line. Reuben says, I'm willing to put somebody else's life on the line and they're the lives of my two sons that I completely control. You remember? Jacob just refuses that outright. How's that going to help me? And Judah is taking the place of the firstborn. Reuben is the firstborn, and Judah is stepping forward here, and he's taking the first, the place of the firstborn, not by birth order, but by humble sacrifice. 
And with all of that, Jacob finally decides. Look at verse 11. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, you hear this resignation, then do this. It's not a decision he wants to make. But he knows he has to make it. He knows he has no other choice. And he finally relents. And he gives permission to travel. If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits from the land in your vessels and carry them for the man. What are those fruits? A little balm, a little honey, a little spice, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Even though there was a famine, resins would have been completely, would have been everywhere. They would have been abundant. There's no corn. There's no food to eat. It's interesting. If you go back to chapter 37, this list is the exact same list that the Ishmaelite caravan had carrying to Egypt whenever they carried Joseph down the first time, minus a couple things. The Ishmaelites had a couple more things when there wasn't a famine. There was honey and, and, a, and something else. Now the journey is going to go back to Egypt, and this time the brothers is going to carry Benjamin, who's the new favorite, as to where the Ishmaelites carried Joseph, the old favorite, there's seven imperatives here. The father is in complete control of all of the decisions. He says, take double the money in your hand. Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the sacks. Take your brother also. Take a gift before you. Jacob also knows a little bit about sending gifts before him. Do you remember Esau? He's still padding his bed here. A double portion of the money for the corn. Return the funds. And in verse 13, the last on the list, take your brother also. And arise and go back to the man. But look at what he says next. And may God Almighty, El Shaddai, give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother, other brother in Benjamin, and if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. He invokes God's hand on the trip. It's the first trip Jacob said nothing about God. And now the Lord has brought Jacob to the point where he has to turn to him. He commits them to the Lord and he uses the name El Shaddai, um, my provider, my sustainer, and he asks him to be merciful. And then he says exactly what mercy he, he desires, that he'll release Simeon and Benjamin. Jacob accepted Judah's pledge and trusted, but he ultimately rested in the Lord. And that's a wonderful recipe for, for dealing with any difficult decision or life in general. You will find in life that you must trust people. And yet people will let you down. But ultimately, your trust should be in the Lord. He trusted the Lord for the outcome, but he looked to Judah's pledge as the instrument. Judah would be the instrument to carry Benjamin, just as the Ishmaelites were God's instrument to carry Joseph to bring it all to pass to where we're at today. And there are some significant undercurrents going on here. I pointed it out to you, but have you noticed that Jacob has been called Israel the entire chapter, the covenant name that God gave him? Verse 6, 
Israel said, verse 11, And their father Israel said to them, over and over. Judah has stepped forward to lead the family, and he's failed miserably in the past. So if he's going to lead, he must pass Jacob's test, and he also must pass Joseph's test, which is coming. Jacob, who has been a horrific father by playing favorites, refusing to deal with problems by faith, he has now resolved the outcome to the Lord's hands. Look at the end of verse 13. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Similar words echoed later by Esther. If I perish, I perish, right? Same phraseology here. It's no small statement. I mean, this is not like, well, I'm just going to crawl back in bed and pull the covers up over top of my head. It's no small statement as a father or from a covenant standpoint. Jacob is saying, I trust God personally and I trust God with His promises. I trust, as a father, I trust God with my children. And as a patriarch of the covenant, I trust God to do what's best in His eyes. He is saying... Just like Abraham, when he takes Isaac up to the mountain, Abraham trusted God that he could even raise the dead if need be. He doesn't want to send Benjamin. He knows what could happen. And Jacob ultimately says El Shaddai will make the final decision. Not Judah, not the man in Egypt. And whatever God chooses, I'm all right with that. That's where Jacob finally is. And so he is now dependent from denial to delay, to dependent. And friend, that's where we all need to be with every single decision. And it might be a painful path to get there, but there's no better place than to be resolved to trust the Lord.